And now, live from Level 5 Productions on the island of Milleronia, it's The Larry Miller Show! Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who loves Ward Bond as Santa. Hi, folks, and welcome back to the Larry Miller Show. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And boy, is it ever a beautiful time here on Milleronia. There is nothing like early May, and I know, again, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, I know that I control the weather. So it's not exactly big, you know, front page headline news. It is on Milleronia, though, that that I that I make another beautiful day. But I I love a beautiful day, and if hey, if someone makes it, why not say so? Well, actually, why say so? But it's just gorgeous here, and uh, Colonel Jeff obviously is with me, and uh, the doggies on the floor here. In the studio of Stately Miller Manor 2, because, of course, Stately Miller Manor is back on the mainland. But, boy, I love it here. It's just just been beautiful. And it has always the, the music makes me so happy when we start our show. That, of course, the John Houston, Walter Houston Orchestra with the Faye McKenzie Dancers and boy tenor Mike Lucking asking the musical question, should I sign up for my company's 401k even if I can't run that far? Sure. Yes. By the way, great question, Mike. It's fun and funny. But absolutely sign up. You know what? You never know. Because even if you just get to 300k, hey, that's pretty good, isn't it? And you may meet a pretty girl in the stands. Of course, just your luck, she's probably the boss's daughter. And then you'll be, well, you'll be jogging for a very long time. But you know something? Yeah, I don't uh, I don't know how long a 401k is. As uh, you all know, I don't know the right things to say about well, what, the, what the website is. But sure, 401k, what does that sound like? About two miles, five miles? I, I don't know. I'm looking at the colonel. He doesn't know. Someone out there, you must know, someone, someone on Milleronia knows, by the way. I could put the word out right now, and people would come running to the front door here, and uh, and they'd have the answer. Of course, uh, most of them would be shot, because I don't like people coming to the front door. After evening time, after dinner, stay away. No, you know what? Someone would know. But Mike, you know what? Should I sign for my, up for my company's 401k, even if I can't run that far? Yes, you should. And I bet you'll surprise yourself. I bet we'd all surprise ourselves with how far we made it. We all just might win. And I just want to mention to you that uh, Faye McKenzie, who I mentioned, who's, uh, well, running the dancers, just died. She was 101 years old and was herself a great singer and dancer, and the co-star with Gene Autry in all his westerns from the 1940s. 
Now, that's pretty neat. Good for you, Faye, and God bless you. You're, uh, well, you're dancing with Gene again, and you should be. And by Amazon. That's right, still the greatest company that pays us to give a percentage of whatever you guys order from that. Amazon, so that, they're the best. Amazon, where it's still the company that has everything in the world you could possibly want, except, of course, an actual Amazon. You can't order them. And if you do, and if one comes and rings the doorbell and you open the door and there's a gorgeous, tall, muscular Amazon standing right there in a revealing outfit, you know what? Call us immediately here. And the colonel and I will come to wherever you are and we'll make sure, first of all, We'll take charge of the Amazon and make sure she's all right, and then we'll make sure you're all right, and then we'll, well, do our tests on the Amazon to make sure she's, well, ready to just blend into our society, whether it's on Milleronia or on the mainland. I can promise you she'd be fine in Milleronia, and, well, she could come to our front door anytime. So Amazon has everything, and... uh so what you do is you want to go to Amazon? Sure, you can get there a hundred different ways. Use your, your, your laptop, your iPhone, anything at all. But don't do that. Don't, that. don't be a knucklehead. Go to our website, and we'll, we'll get you there. That's LarryMillerPodcast.com. Who's on the mountain? Tom Mix. Wow. I, you know, I'm, I'm starting to feel... A little cranky about that fellow not fixing his string. And that's not a metaphor. I mean, I'm really about the actual string on his guitar. So go to our website. We have a banner that says Amazon. Click on our banner and we'll do all the work. We'll get you there. Click on our banner and then go, you know, lay down in your lazy boy chair and put a magazine over your face and take a nap and crank that chair back to where it's almost like an astronaut chair where you're going to Mars or something, or Venus, or the great planet Pluto, as you know, and uh, Chile, maybe, but it's a great planet. And uh, you just relax, and we'll get you to Amazon, and they'll get you wherever you want to go. And remember, if they send you an Amazon, call us fast. Don't kid around. And uh, that brings me to my favorite part of the show, the joke of the week. Oh, boy, and this is a good one, too. There's a train going through the badlands of Texas, and it's back in around 1885. And, well, that was a tough place to go through. There was, well, people with a lot of bad guys and a lot of ooh, gangs of... Uh, of Indian gangs and uh, settler gangs and everybody just riding which away. And uh, that train is going, and suddenly it stops in the middle of nowhere. And I mean nowhere. And the people on that, the one car, the one passenger car with its wooden chairs looking at each other, what's going on? And a guy gets on the train, and he comes clinking up those steps and into the aisle of the passenger car, and he's a tough guy. He's got... He's a two-gun wearing guy, and he's got the hat. He's got the ooh, he's got big spurs, and he's got bowed legs from being a, a rancher for so long. 
and he's as tough as could be, and he casts a weather eye around those passengers, and they're frightened, and he says, Are there any Jews on this train? And people stiffen with fear, especially in the back. There is a man, a Jewish man, who's a traveling salesman. That happened a lot in well, in the 19th century. A lot of Jewish fellows from the New York area come be traveling salesmen and go all around the country. And he slinks down a little. He's, he, he's scared, too, more scared than everyone else. And the Texan yells again, I said, are there any Jews on this train? And the guy thinks to himself, well, God hates a coward. And he stands up and he says, me, I'm a Jew. I'm Jewish. And the Texan says, no, Kim Shrin, the Daftine Minion. <laughs> Which means, so come on already. We need a minion. And that joke always made me laugh because I have a theory that there are jokes where the punchline is in Yiddish, but it's still funny for everyone, even if you have no idea what Yiddish is or don't speak Yiddish or even a word of Yiddish. And uh, so that makes me laugh. It's a, it's a guy, a two-gun guy in the Badlands of Texas in 1885. That, that's funny because, you know, there's always, by the way, he's, and he's looking for a minion. That is the minimum amount of 10 Jewish people, well, over the age of 13, so Jewish adults, who can start a service. Not only the morning service, but Musaf, the afternoon service, or the evening service, and uh, Marif. And, and, and the point is, though, you need 10. And people say their memorial prayers then, so you have to, you can't start it without 10. And I've been asked, I was telling the colonel, well, many times, many times, six, seven times when I was a kid, you know, you're only 15, 16 years old, walking through Manhattan, you either you're on the way back to the train, the Long Island Railroad, to go home, or you're going to get a bite, or you have a meetings or something. I don't know how many meetings I had at 15, but, you know, you're there, and suddenly a guy will stick his head out of one of the uh, doors in a building on the side street there, and he, he's he got a black coat and a beard, and he looks at, around this way, he looks at you and says, uh, hey, you're a Lonsman, meaning are you Jewish? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, and he'd say, and he'd just say, Come on, he'd wave at you with his hand. And never say what, by the way. He wouldn't say, oh, can you come in? We need you for the... He would just, come on, wave his hand without even saying, come on. So, of course, I'd always go and you come in and there's a little uh, synagogue there. And they needed a minion. They needed one more guy for a minion. And then they could start, well, the afternoon service. And I, so I would do that. And it's very, very touching, by the way, that you help people and yourself pray. So you you make a contact there with God. It's very nice. And at the end of the service, by the way, it's only like a 20-minute service. And at the end of the service, you don't, <laughs> there's no meal or anything. There's no, you know, uh, repast set out. There's no kiddish. You're just standing there, and people just walk by. So a couple of folks will walk by and give you a you know, clop on the shoulder, pat, pat, and not even say anything. But that's saying, good. Good for you. And uh, and I, li I like that feeling. I liked it a lot. And it uh, it always made me think, 
Well, again, like that joke, there are plenty of things you can do that can be funny without even knowing what you what what they mean. There's a there's another one I've always liked. There's a trial in New York in the federal courthouse in Foley Square. And by the way, you've all seen that courthouse. I've shot shows there and a movie too on the steps of that courthouse. You've all seen it. It with big columns and you know a big Ooh, like uh, 40 steps going up to it. And so there's a trial in New York there, in, right, in in that federal courthouse. And uh, the next witness is called, and the judge sees the witness come up, and he's, well, he's an Orthodox rabbi. He's got what, the black coat and the black beard and the black hat. And the judge says to the bailiff, uh, go get the Yiddish interpreter. Now, with this, the... Uh, the rabbi looks at the judge, walks over and says, excuse me, your honor, that the mere manner of my garb suggests my facility or lack of facility with the English language is prejudicial. It so happens I'm a Harvard graduate, I'm a Rhodes Scholar, and I uh, can translate seven languages for the United Nations, which I do. And the interpreter says, your honor, the man hat gesucht, er kann reden Englisch besser von dir. Now, that joke has always made me laugh because, well, by the way, and what it means is, uh, Your Honor, this man just said he can speak English better than you. But you don't even really need to know that to laugh. As I just told the colonel, if if you're not laughing at the word gazukt, I don't know when you're going to laugh. The man said... So you know what? That was uh, that was the idea for the joke of the week. And you got two out of it, too. That's pretty good. And that brings me to my second favorite part of the show, The Poetry Corner. Still the greatest string quartet in the world. This is a wonderful poem, and uh, it's in Gaelic. No, I'm just kidding. It's <laughs> What's wrong with Larry? Everything is in a different language now. It's a very good poem by a great poet and a great author. It's called My Treasures by Robert Louis Stevenson. Stevenson, by the way, was born in Scotland. He lived there. 1850 to 1894, and one of his biggest influences was his nurse who read him Pilgrim's Progress and the Old Testament, which, as I, I told Colonel Jeff, and in those days, those were comic books for for him. But uh, they were very close, and, and he loved her. And this one is called My Treasures by Robert Louis Stevenson. These nuts that I keep in the back of the nest where all my tin soldiers are lying at rest were gathered in autumn by Nursey and me in a wood with a well by the side of the sea. This whistle we made, and how clearly it sounds, by the side of a field at the end of the grounds, of a branch of a plain with a knife of my own, it was Nursey who made it, and Nursey alone. The stone 
with the white and the yellow and the gray, we discovered I cannot tell how far away, and I carried it back, although weary and cold, for though father denies it, I'm sure it is gold. But of all my treasures, the last is the king, for there's very few children possess such a thing, and that is a chisel, both handle and blade, which a man who was really a carpenter made. Isn't that nice? And Stevenson, as great an author as he was, wrote it. It, it sounds like a child, too, a child thinking and being proud of this and that and showing us things. And that's what a great poem. He's showing them to you and to me. Hey, look at this. Well, thank you, Mr. Stevenson, for another great piece of work. And that brings me to my third favorite part of the show. The Magic Movie Moment. This is a wonderful movie. And uh, it's why I mentioned also in the beginning, it was directed and written by John Huston. And one of the stars was his father, the great Walter Huston. What a wonderful actor he was. It's from 1948, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, starring Humphrey Bogart, Walter Houston, Tim Holt, Barton McLean, Bruce Bennett, Robert Blake. That's right. And as a child, as a baby. Well, not a baby, but he was like five years old. And you know what, folks? This is a terrific movie. And uh, it, it's, it moves me so much. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And, uh, it's well, these fellas, these are down-and-out guys, Humphrey Bogart and Tim Holt, and they're in Mexico. And, by the way, this is one of the first movies, the first Hollywood movies, to be shot out of town, to be shot in a different country. There were more after that, and uh, maybe one or two before, but this was it. And uh, it's just terrific. And Bogart and Holt are, well, they meet a fella, an older man named Walter Houston. Well, that's his real name. And they meet him in a flop house, which is where, well, they had no money. You have no money, and you're in the middle of Mexico somewhere. Well, that's the way you're going to crash. That's the way you're going to sleep. And those fellas learned all sorts of things like you don't take your shoes off. You don't take your boots off or anything because that's the last you'll see of them. And that was the truth. But they meet, the two of them meet, well, Walter Houston, and he tells them stories. He's he's a talky kind of guy, and he loves to have someone to talk to. He's telling them about his search for gold and how many times he went out and about, and they buy it. They get, well, he's telling the truth, but they really get their, well, their their lips wet thinking of this. Wow, looking for gold, mining for gold. Where? Well, in the mountains, the mountains of the Sierra Madre. And they, sure enough, they win. By the way, Humphrey Bogart buys, buys a lottery ticket in the street and wins. And he buys the ticket from a young Mexican boy who is Robert Blake. But he buys that ticket and he wins. And together with the, uh, well, some of the, 
only cash they have left from having been, well, rough guys, roughneckers, putting up an oil well. And they put it all together, the three of them, and they decide to go off to look for gold in the Sierra Madres. And this was not an easy thing to do, to say the least. This was in 1925 in Mexico. And uh, good luck now to take a train, pack into a train, and take it as far as you could get. And then wherever you get out, you look to buy, well, a, a couple of burrows and a couple of wicker baskets and a couple of knives and a couple of tools and just head off for the mountains. And it's a wonderful movie. And whew, you know what? The magic movie moment for me is the uh, the three of them working so hard and the smartest one of them, and the most experienced one of them, the one with the greatest nose for all of this, is Walter Houston. And he sees it. He, sm- he can see it and smell it in the dirt. And he knows they're on the right trail for gold. And they're about ready to quit. But now they're back into it again. And they're whew, off in the middle of nowhere. And they start, well, being miners and digging and digging and digging and setting up little little tiny wooden things that let some of the water go by through it. And they're digging with their little shovels. And for a long time, weeks and then months, and they're finding it. They're getting it. But then at one point, Tim Holt uh, goes back into town there, which is a long way off, to get more supplies, to get more things, little food, coffee, you know, flour, a couple of things like that. And he's seen by a oh, terrific actor, Bruce Bennett, and uh, who's, uh, well, another American who's just down there looking, looking for something, looking for something to tie into. And he sees Bruce Bennett there. Or rather, Bruce Bennett sees him. And Bennett just, you know, sidles up, says, oh, what are you doing down here? You're an American. I'm an American. And Tim Holt tells them, you know, the story they made up about what they're doing and they're hunting for this and that. They're just hunters and that uh, he's picking up some supplies. But, but wow, Bennett can see right through that. And so can we. It's just, boy, just Bennett can see it and smell it. And uh, he says, well, where are you going? When are you going back? And he follows him back into the mountains there. He follows him at some distance. But he wants to tap into whatever it is they're doing. And he does that. He comes up to them. And he says, well, to Bogart and Houston and Holt, I'm, well, I'm an American. I'm from here. And I, you know, I left the family and just to look for a chance like this. And he suggests, he pitches them. He says, you know what? Let's be partners from now on. I'll be a fourth in this with you. And uh, let me join up with you, and I'll I'll dig my heart out. I'll be the best partner you ever had in this. And they say, hold on a second. And the three of them walk away, and they decide, no. They decide they're just going to go back and kill him. And they don't want to give anything to anyone, because as Walter Houston said, they're already a little crazed. They're becoming more and more crazed with, well, this greed and this sense of not giving anything to anyone, especially a guy who ties into us like this. And they go back, and 
He, they tell him they got, they got their guns out, and they say, all right, this is it. This is what's going to happen. And at that second, Mexican bandits attack, led by the leader, Gold Hat is his name in the movie. And Bogart has already had a couple of run-ins with him, and he's as tough as nails, and he's not kidding around, and he has a few of his, well, his real gang with him, a few other fellas, and they attack... Well, Bogart, Houston, and and Holt, and Bruce Bennett. And it turns out that just as, you know, others, they're firing back and forth, and these fellows aren't kidding around on both sides. And suddenly the federales come to the rescue. And the, well, Gold Hat and his bandits see this, and they, ah, they're really mad. And they run off. They run from the federales. And the federales chase them. So... The fellas have survived, and they've won this battle. But Bruce Bennett was shot and killed. And, well, true, they were going to kill him anyway, but, well, you fight with someone on the same side, and he stood up with them, and he fought those bandits off too. And now he's dead. And they find a letter in his pocket, and... It's from his wife, and his wife and the kids, and she says, you know, please come back and, you know, don't do anything crazy or get hurt, and we're waiting here for you. And it's written much better than that. It's very touching. And you know what? It shows us a great lesson of this movie. The point is, how much do you want, and when do you want it, and what are you willing to give up? from your heart and soul, to get it. And now, this fellow's dead. And what they do then, well, that's the rest of the movie. But that's a very meaningful magic movie moment to me. They fight that battle. And in this movie, by the way, it's, all, it's also said, comes a little later, Gold Hat is back, and uh, Bogart is separated from the other two. I won't tell you why. But he's got the donkeys, and he's got the bags of gold, all that gold dust, and it's tied to the donkeys, and uh, Gold Hat and the bandits come up to him, and that's where you see, uh, they say, they're federales. They say, oh, yeah, we're the federales. Bogart says, you, uh, oh, yeah, you don't have any badges, and that became one of the most famous lines in the movie where Gold Hat says to him, badges? We don't need no stinking badges. <laughs> and he laughs. But what a great moment. What a tough, horrible moment. And what a great line from it. And, well, again, what happens, you should see the movie. Do that, folks. It's a great magic movie moment, but also a wonderful movie, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And we learn as many lessons in it as the characters themselves do. The reason I love magic movie moments so much is that when we're involved in a story, a really well-told story, like a great movie, and very often a great TV show too, but when we're involved in it, we become part of it. And I was part of one today. I've mentioned MeTV before, and they're not a sponsor, but I can't say enough about them. They have the greatest shows, and 
just this afternoon, before the colonel got here to the studio on Milleronia, and uh, I was watching an episode of Wagon Train with Ward Bond, and ah, uh, oh, he's just terrific, and a wonderful cast there. And this was a story about they're on the wagon train and they're heading west. And here it is. It's coming up to two days before Christmas. And it's coming up. And well, one of the one of the fellows on the wagon train who's known Major Adams, that's Ward Bond for a while. And he's he's tough, but very colorful. And he's got a nice Irish accent. And he's not a kid, he's oh in his sixties or seventies, and he's got a beard and and uh he's fun to watch and he's fun to watch as he deals with Ward Bond and uh, they show you how, how the friends they kind of are. And Indians attack. This is two days before Christmas. And it's coming up to nightfall, and the Indians attack into the camp there in the wagon train camp, and there's a battle. The Indians not only circle the wagons, but they come charging in there, whooping and hollering. And I was saying to the colonel, I never quite got that as a kid or an adult of the, the whooping of the woo-woo-woo-woo. I never quite got that. Shouldn't you be quiet? Don't you want to just charge in and, well, bonk someone on the head with a rifle or a baseball bat or something? But they attack and people are getting shot all over the place on both sides. And the settlers and, well, the wagon train folks beat them off. They, The Indians leave. They go charging back away again. So they didn't get them. They weren't attacking to make peace. They weren't attacking to say, hi, how are you? But they got beaten off, and they, and they uh, well, they charged away. And now we see, well, there is, there's folks who were shot in the wagon train, and there's folks who were killed in the wagon train. And one of the ones shot is the older Irish fellow with the beard, and he was going to play Santa Claus. He's got his outfit, and he was telling all the kids before the attack, you know, listen, Christmas is important because a lot of these settlers there were thinking, what are we even doing here now? They're at that point in a wagon train, and why are we even, you know, uh, who cares about Christmas at this point? And he was saying, ah, oh, but it's always wonderful to do this and that. And sure enough, over that night and then the next day, he dies. And Ward Bond is with him in his wagon. And they're talking, and it's it's wonderful to see him. And he knows this is the end. And Ward Bond, well, starts to say, you know, don't give up. Don't do this. You know, and he says, no, I know. I know what the duck says. They have a doc on the train, a doctor on the wagon train there, one of the settlers. And he said, but I know. I know that this this is it. And he has a small smile, and he says to Ward, you know, that, uh, listen, all the things I promised to the kids, someone has to do, and it's got to be yours, Major. And you got to do it. And Ward uh, Bond shakes his head and smiles and says, I should have known there was something coming like this. But they're, they, they have a great moment, and it's close. And then he dies. And Ward Bond is very touched. And, of course, he sees the, uh, the, the Santa Claus outfit has already been laid out. 
that the guy took out before he was shot. And it's lying on his bunk there with the cap. With the, Well, you know what a Santa Claus outfit is and the boots and the red and white pants with the little white fur and the red and white jacket with the little white fur and the big black belt. And the next day, Ward Bond goes off to see, well, to see the, you know, the uh, the chief. He wants to go find one of his kids, one of the kids from the wagon train. The parents are going crazy because the kid wandered off. And this is a five-year-old boy. And sure enough, at the same time, one of the Indian boys, the son of the chief, was also about five. He wandered off, too, from their camp. And the two kids just find each other in the middle of nowhere. And uh, the kid from the wagon train, this blonde kid, is playing with rocks and building a little fort. And the Indian boy just sees this. They don't say a word to each other. And that's very nicely shot. They, the, the Indian kid gets off his horse, goes over and starts playing with stones too, just building his fort right next to it. And they're so comfortable together, happy as clams, as the old saying goes. And... Well, their parents on both sides are losing their minds. They're so worried. They figured, well, the boys are going to get killed. That each uh, each one of that if the Indians find the, the the kid, the blonde kid, they're just going to kill him. And the uh, and the Indian parents are saying that you know all the white people are going to just find our kid. And uh, what do you think they'll do? And Ward Bond coming up to well the day before Christmas, and it's getting dark out there, and he he goes out on his own to look for this kid. They've all been looking everywhere, but he goes out alone, and the chief has gone out alone too. And sure enough, they, well, they run into each other on the trail, and they get off the horses and come over, and they have an exchange. They talk to each other that's just terrific it's very well written and the fears and what one says to the other and uh, you know that uh, this would you would kill the chief says you would kill our son and we don't do that and indians say and the uh, ward bond says to him yeah if i hadn't been here first what would you have done to that kid to our kid and you know what you would have done you would have killed him and they they have uh, this exchange that's kind of tough to each other. And Ward Bond talks him into saying, you know what, for right now, you take your son and I'll take this boy. And let's go, let's go in peace without killing each other and just go back to where we live. This one time, let, let it start here. And they agree to that. The chief agrees and won't say anything, but Ward Bond says, say it. You got to say it. It's no good if you don't say it. And the chief does. He says it, and they both agree and take the two boys, carry the two boys away. And folks, you know what? That next night, well, it's coming up. It is the night. It's Christmas Eve. And... Ward Bond says back in the camp there at the at the wagon train to the little guy. What is his, I couldn't remember his name. Hooper or or Cooper or something. 
And he's got a beard, and he's always got that, that tough voice, and he's always saying, well, well, "Major, you can't, you can't yell at people like that." And just, and just, oh, shut up now, Cooper, get out of here. And uh, but Ward Bond says to him, "You're the guy. Come here. He's got that you that you have to play Santa." And it's what well, me? Why me? And he says, "Cause let's just put a come on, get in the wagon here." And uh, they, he puts it on him there. And he says, I can't even wear it. Look, it's, way, it's too big. It's too long. It's too wide. And it hits Ward Bond. How, how is the Santa suit that big that it's too big for Cooper? How could it possibly be? How did his old friend who died, who was killed in the attack, how did he fix this? How did he do this? And there's a kind of magic to it. And Ward Bond gets it. He gets the point. He had said in the beginning part of the show, oh, it doesn't mean much to him. Christmas doesn't mean anything to him. He doesn't believe in Santa Claus. He doesn't believe in this, doesn't believe in that. But now he sees the size of this thing as it's being worn by Cooper, and he gets it and smiles and says, all right. And he, he kind of looks away and speaks to his dead friend. He's not in there now, but he, he speaks to him well in the next world and says, I guess you knew, didn't you? Somehow you you did this. And he smiles, and he says to Cooper, all right, get it off, get it off. And Cooper takes it off, and we next see, out comes Ward Bond from the wagon. Sure, it was made for him. How was it made? Who knows? And who cares? Just buy the magic. Let it get into you. And... Sure enough, Ward Bond's got a big white beard on. That's part of the outfit and the, and the cap. And he gets down and all the kids and they found a, a pine tree. Ward Bond sent them out to get a pine tree and bring it back and put candles on it and string candy, popcorn, popcorn that they could make. And uh, Ward Bond sits down and they, they don't even know what to say. And he says, why? Come on. There's nothing. No, no reason to be scared of Santa. And uh, he takes the beard off and the cap off. And, of course, it's him. It's Major Adams. And he says, you know, all over in Europe and France, they call this somehow. It's not just Santa Claus. And here in in, in Norway, it's Father Christmas. And uh, it's so well written again. And Ward Bond plays it that way. And suddenly we see one of the kids says to him, do you believe in Santa Claus? And Ward Bond says, you bet your boots I do. I sure do. But we see he's not kidding. He he feels it. He gets it. And what's the it? The it is us being touched by this, folks. And he says to all of them, come on. And then somebody says, uh, Major, look. And up on the hill there, about well, it's about 100 yards away. But we can see it's, well, it's the chief and a dozen of his braves, and they're on horseback, and, well, that's not a good sign, is it? And Ward Bond goes up there on foot in the Santa outfit, but that doesn't mean anything, and he says to the guy, the chief says to him, I was remembering what you said. I think about this, that it all starts with one step. Why don't we? And then I said, the chief says, I thought to myself, why not now? Why not make that step now? And uh, 
he says the word, friends, and he holds his hand out, and Ward Bond does the same thing. He says, friends, back to him, and they shake hands. Folks, this may not sound like much, but I'm telling you, it was so well done and so touching. And then the chief and his braves go back to their camp, and Ward Bond goes back to the wagon train. And one of the women in the wagon train has given birth. She was, well, of course, she was very pregnant. She was near labor anyway on that night, on Christmas Eve. And she's healthy and the baby's healthy. And she's in her wagon there and she's smiling and holding the baby, the newborn baby. Folks, you can't beat this. I mean, I had told Colonel Jeff and he knows this anyway. What else are you looking for? Nothing. There's nothing else to look for. And you know what? I'm awfully glad I saw it. I love seeing the movies that I talk about. I love them very much. But sometimes, you know what? You have to say, boy, there's a lot of good TV that's out there that's being broadcast all over. And yes, me TV shows a lot of it. And you see a wagon train episode like this, and you realize you look at the writers and the, and you look at the actors and what they do, and you think, this is terrific stuff, and I'm glad it's out there. I know that. You know it, too. We know the same things. Homer is Homer, and Pluto is a planet. So remember, folks, as always... If you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone there who cares about you, folks, the game's over and you've won. Wagon, train, or not. Be well. We'll see you here next week.